So Daniel chapter 1 is where we're going to be today. And, and we're not going to go all the way through the book of Daniel, but we are going to go through the majority of, of Daniel chapter 1. One of my goals today is, is that you'd understand the basis for Daniel. Uh, you'd understand what Daniel talks of, what he's talking about, so that it's easier for you to understand the book of Daniel. And so the, the title of this message is Thriving, Not Surviving. Thriving, Not Surviving. Uh, more and more, it seems like that I'm meeting more and more Christians with the culture shock and the culture shift and the things that are going on in the culture that it seems like they're just using language like, you know what, we're just getting through. You know what, we're just surviving. You know what, we're just going to suck it up. We're going to gut through it. We're going to make it through it. And so what I'm finding is like there's more and more Christians that are using language like they're surviving and not thriving. I mean, I, I don't know if, if you're like me, but there are times that I go to bed and I wake up the next morning and I feel like I'm in a completely different world, right? I mean, it, it's like the whole culture just, just shifted. And sometimes there's quick shifts and then sometimes there's shifts that happen over time, right? I mean, this last week I was thinking, well, I, I needed a phone number. And so I didn't know the, the phone number of the person I needed to call, so I just asked the Google. And so, so I went to the Google, I asked the Google, and I got the phone number. I can remember a time when you needed a phone number, you had to actually ask someone. Remember those times when you had to pick up the phone, you dialed 411, and then an actual person answered, and you, and you had to give the name, and you had to sometimes spell it, and then they, they'd like look it up for you, and then for an extra charge, they could, they could automatically connect you. Remember those days? And so there's some shifts in technology that have happened, and those don't unsettle us near as much as when the shifts happen in culture and in, in values and some of those other things, because it, it can be unsettling. And so I want to talk to you this morning from the, the book of Daniel, and I want to use Daniel's life as an example. Daniel was in a, he was in a difficult culture. He was in a difficult culture. He was a difficult, difficult time, and he is probably the greatest example that I could find in Scripture of how to handle a difficult culture when the culture has shifted. In other words, Daniel led his culture in such a way that he led them through three different revivals. And Daniel responded to a a culture that has shifted in such a way that he, he, he won the culture over. Fact is, he won the leadership over. He won the, high, won the highest ranking leaders over. And so you look at Daniel's life and you begin to wonder, well, where did he live? Well, he was taken in captivity. He was taken to Babylon. And so you have to ask yourself, well, just how bad was Babylon? Babylon is a per personification of evil. I mean, when, when there's heavenly language going on, when there's heavenly talk going on, and, and in the heavens they begin talking about, about a place that's really bad, they don't compare it to like Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, Las Vegas, Nazi Germany, Iraq, Iran, or any of those places. You know what they say? They say, you know what, it's evil. And it was like Babylon. That place is like Babylon. I'm telling you, in the heavenlies, Babylon is referred to as like the most evil place, the personification of evil. Uh, Revelation 18.2, here's what the scripture says. He gave a mighty shout. Babylon is fallen. That great city is fallen. She has become a home for demons. She is a hideout for every foul spirit, a hideout for every foul vulture, and a hideout for every foul and dreadful animal. I still think I have a dog there. <laughs> anyway, we better move on. And so, 
And so we're told right before Jesus comes again, this is what happens. The angels begin to shout, Babylon has fallen, Babylon has fallen. And even though Babylon doesn't exist today, and by prophecy it will never exist, it will never be rebuilt, but in human history, Babylon is a personification of evil. And they had an evil king, or they had an evil president, and his name was Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar was like this, this evil person. I mean, he raided God's temple, and he took God's holy things, God's sacred things, and he put them on display just to mock God. If you know anything about the Old Testament, you know that you don't mess with the things of God. And yet Nebuchadnezzar did that. And so, I mean, it'd be like us trying to imagine today. It's kind of not the same, but it is the same. It'd be kind of like us imagining today that if someone broke into our church and like stole our cross and they destroyed it and they drug it down to the river walk, And they displayed it in such a way to mock us, to make fun of us, to mock Christianity, to mock God. It would make us angry. It would make us mad. In our culture, I mean, I've seen, I've seen governments and legislators and Supreme Courts and school boards do all kinds of strange things. And because I live in Colorado, I wonder, what were they smoking? I mean, you just kind of wonder when they make these decisions. And Daniel, I mean, in Daniel's time, Daniel's time was much worse than ours. And and when you begin to look at Daniel's struggle, listen, Daniel was a God follower. And he was kidnapped as a young man. And shortly after he was kidnapped, he was castrated. And he had his name changed to honor Satan. I mean, any of us would have to say that is a very bad week. He was kidnapped to a place that he had never heard of, to a very unforgiving place, a different culture, different values, total differences, different language. And on top of all of that, his name was changed to honor Satan, and he was castrated. None of us have been in a situation quite like Daniel. So I want to give you four things. I want to give you four things. Listen, God hasn't called all of us to be Daniels, but God has called us to take the principles of Daniel and apply them to our life. And so I want to give you four things that if you want to thrive and not survive in this society, if you want to thrive and not survive in this culture, then there's four things you have to do. The first one is this. It just comes right out of Daniel's life. This, I'm telling this sermon almost preaches itself. It's just, it's just right there in Daniel chapter 1. The first thing is this. You have to remember God is in control. You have to remember that ultimately God is in control. If you're going to thrive in this culture, you've got to remember God is in control. Daniel chapter 1, verse 1, here's what the Scripture says. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it, destroyed it. Okay, verse 2, if you're a note taker, if you're an underliner, if you make notes in your Bible, whether it's electronic, uh, uh, old school, Uh, However you do that, verse 2 is critical for you and I to understand the book of Daniel. Verse 2 is critical for us to understand how to thrive and not survive. Verse 2 says this, And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into Daniel's hand. In other words, God allowed it. God allowed Nebuchadnezzar's hand. I'm sorry. God allowed Nebuchadnezzar to take over Jerusalem. With some of the vessels of the house of God, he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and he placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Don't miss this. God gave Nebuchadnezzar victory. 
That's the key to understanding this book. The foundation of understanding the book of Daniel is understanding, regardless of what happens in culture, regardless of who's in power, who's not in power, God is ultimately in control. Now listen, our culture may shock us, but our culture will never shock God. And everything that happens is either by God's determined will or his permissive will. But, that, but God is ultimately in control. And Daniel got that. That even though Jerusalem had been destroyed and the temple had been raided and he took some of the sacred things, some of the vessels in the house of God and, and displayed them to mock, God is still in control. Sometimes, you know, sometimes, honestly, I think we've forgotten that. See, Daniel was able to remember that. Daniel was able to remember that, guess what, Nebuchadnezzar, he may be my earthly king, but he's not my heavenly king. Sometimes I think we've forgotten that. And let me tell you something. Uncle Sam may be your uncle, but he is not your heavenly father. Okay? Listen, I know that's simple, but I'm from Texas, and we put the cookies on the low shelf so everybody gets some. <laughs> uncle Sam. Uncle Sam may be your uncle, but Uncle Sam is not your heavenly father. America is not the kingdom of God. Just not. See, Daniel got that. God not only gave him Nebuchadnezzar victory over Jerusalem, God also allowed, for some reason, for Nebuchadnezzar to raid the temple and then to take the sacred things of God, the devoted things of God, back to Babylon. And there he put them on display in Nebuchadnezzar's temple uh, to mock God, uh, to basically to say that Jehovah God is not as powerful as my God, the God, uh, the Baal. And I, I don't think we grasp how shocking this was to those who, who in their times, when they began to read the book of, of Daniel, I mean, the, the vessels of the house of God were just incredibly sacred. And if we learn anything from the Old Testament, we've learned this. It just, it's not good to mess with the sacred things. And what had Nebuchadnezzar done is he had messed with the sacred things. He had taken the things out of, out of, the, out of Jerusalem and the vessels of God and used those to mock God. And so verse 3, we just go on. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youth without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. Daniel was taken into Babylon, and, he, and the language was different, and the culture was different, and the values was different. Oh, in, in the literature that they had to study, the literature of Babylon that they had to study was astrology and the occult. And all of a sudden, Daniel now was taken out of Jerusalem, taken there, and he's trained for a little bit over three years. And then after he was trained, he was put into service to where he served an evil king, to where he served a godless king, to where he served Nebuchadnezzar. And so we just go on in the story, verse 5. Then the king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. And they were to be educated for three years. And at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Meshel, Azariah of the tribe of Judah. 
and the chief of the eunuchs gave them new names. Watch this. Daniel called Belteshar, Hananiah called Shadrach, Michelle, he called Meshach, Azariah, he called Abednego. Now listen, it gets worse for Daniel. Just like it couldn't get any worse, it gets worse. His new name is Belteshar. Now, Daniel's name meant this. Daniel's name meant God is, God is my judge. Belteshar, you know what Belteshar means? Satan's prince. Daniel, we're going to change your name. We're going to change your name from Christian to Satan. We're going to change your name from Christian to Satan's little friend. That's what your name's going to be called. Verse 8. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. It's an amazing thing how Daniel responded to when he got to that place to where they wanted him to eat the king's food. And he knew that God forbid that. He knew that God said no to that. And Daniel, Daniel asked for permission. See, many times in our culture, in our times as Christians, uh, you know, we say, we say, hey, we're Christians. We don't eat stuff like that. We're not going to do that. I mean, we're, we're Christians. We're not eating stuff like that. We're not doing stuff like that. We're not acting like that. But you see, Daniel was totally different. See, we got to be, listen, we got to be able in this culture to tell the difference between the things that we don't like and the things that God forbids. And Daniel understood that. Daniel got that. I mean, when you look at this, you just notice Daniel's humility. Daniel came to them and he just asked for permission. In other words, Daniel understood that ultimately God's in control. That's where humility comes from. It's this issue of trusting God and not culture, trusting God and not self. And so Daniel just came to him and said, hey, is there any way I can get out of this? And so he goes, verse 9, watch what God did. And God gave Daniel favor because Daniel understood, guess what? I trust God. God's in control. And compassion. Compassion for who? For the evil king and the evil people that were over him. Daniel loved people that were different than him. In the sight of the chief of eunuchs. This is the second time when we read in the story, we're not far into the story, that we realize we have another illustration that guess what? God is in control. God's ultimately in control. And so, so verse 10, And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, so here's their response, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youth who are your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. So you know what he tells Daniel? Daniel, this is a rough place. And Nebuchadnezzar, he's a rough king. And I, he'd have my head if it turned out bad. And Daniel understood. So Daniel responds. He understood an organizational chart. So he just works his way up the organization, verse 11, in a respectful way. Then Daniel said to the, verse 11, then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Hananiah Mishael, Azariah, test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given veg vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youth who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter. And he tested them for 10 days. At the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youth who ate the king's food. 
So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. And now again, we see God's in control. Daniel understood God's ultimately in control. Verse 17. As for these four youth, God gave them learning and skill and all literature and wisdom. What literature? Literature of astrology and the occult. We've got to be able to discern the difference between the things we don't like and God forbids. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and all dreams. In other words, you know what God's doing? God is making it so that Daniel can understand the culture so that later when Nebuchadnezzar, when the country folds, that Daniel can speak in to the culture because he understands it. And so he's, he, he's moving up. Verse, verse 18. And at the end of the time when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 20. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and the encanters, and they were in his kingdom, that were in his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of king of Cyrus. So the first thing you have to do, if you want to thrive and not survive, you've got to understand God's in control. You may not understand the culture. You may not understand the shift. You may not understand what's going on. You may not even like it. But we have to come to the place to where we understand ultimately God is in control. The second thing is this, that if you're going to thrive and not just survive, you have to look to the future with optimism. If you're going to thrive and not just survive, you have to come to that place to where you you look to the future with optimism. In other words, you're not pessimistic. I cannot tell you how important this is, that if we as Christians, if we as believers, if we want to influence our world, we cannot be pessimistic, beat up, glass half empty kind of folks. Listen, no one wants to join a bunch of depressed losers, right? You ever been around a group of people and they're just so depressed and all they're talking about is how, how bad the world is, the sky is falling and we're losing and we're horrible and we're losers and we're depressed and we're just surviving. And then they look at you and say, hey, would you like to join our church? Nobody wants to join a bunch of depressed losers, right? And so we need to realize that a pessimistic Christian is an oxymoron. Uh, Daniel understood that. The Lord delivered him. The Lord gave him knowledge. The Lord gave him compassion. The Lord gave him grace. And even though everything on the outside to Daniel, it looked like everything was going wrong, Daniel knew that on the inside that God was ultimately in control of his life. And he always has been and he always will be. I mean, we can look at the book of Revelation, right? We can look at the book of Revelation and we learn. Guess what? We win, right? Can you, Daniel didn't have revelation. Dan, Daniel didn't know how the story ends. You know, it's interesting in the times that we live, the most popular book that people are asking me to preach right now is Revelation. They want me to preach Revelation. And really, what they want me to tell them is just two things. When does Jesus come back? And who is the Antichrist? And it better be someone they hate politically. <laughs> That's really all anybody wants to know. When's Jesus coming back and who is the Antichrist? And I've told you my end time theology is this. Live like Jesus is coming back today and plan like he's not coming back for a hundred years. I mean, live like Jesus is just coming back today, but plan like he's not coming back for a hundred years. And I got to admit, in the times that we live, I mean, thank the Lord, we, saw, we survived another blood moon, right? 
I mean, with all the prophecy, with all the stuff that's been saying, uh, the day after the blood moon, I had a pastor friend of, me, of mine text me, and he says, he says, oh, no. Now I have to pay, make those payments for that Ferrari I bought. He said, I was for sure Jesus was coming back, and I wouldn't have to make the payments. And so uh, we've made it, and we've, we've seen books written that, that Jesus was coming back in September, and then we had another religious group say he's coming back last week, end of the world's coming. And, but i got to admit to you, right, that night, it was kind of creepy, right? I mean, with all the prophecy in Matthew and other places in Scripture, um, I, I'll just tell you a quick story. Uh, Karen and I, my wife, were checking out the, the blood moon at various times, and she had run upstairs because she liked to look out one of the bedroom windows because she felt she could see it better there, so she's looking at the blood moon. And so I run out. At one point, I run out outside on the back patio, and I'm looking at it. It was just, it was just amazing. And so I run back in the house. I scream upstairs, hey, Karen, come look at this. And they're like, no answer. I'm like, hey, Karen, come look at this. And they're like, no answer. So I ran down to the basement. And I'm like, Karen, you down there? And there's like nothing. I'm thinking, I missed the rapture. I mean, I'm like, I knew she was going before me. I mean, oh, my gosh, I've missed it. And this, this last week I was at lunch with a bunch of police officers. And so if you know anything about police officers, they all got stories. Uh, and so, so do pastors. And so we're sharing stories. And they told the story about the night of the blood moon. There's his husband and wife. They went, to, they went to get gas. And so he got out of the car. He's pumping gas. And so he did not notice that his wife got out of the car and she went inside to buy something. Yeah, he put, he, put the, he put the thing back, paid, and he walks in to get in the car, and his wife is not there, and he, like, totally freaked out. And he says, ah, oh, we've missed it. And so anyway, <laughs> I've just decided about this end-time theology stuff. Listen, I'm on the welcoming committee, not the planning committee. You know what? And I'm, I'm, I'm good with that. And I, I don't know all the details, but I know this. God is ultimately in control. And I know this. We win. We win. And I think when I hear a lot of conversations by Christians, whether it's blogs, Facebook, Twitter, emails that I receive, conversations that I have with Christians, I think some of the Christians have simply forgotten that, guess what? We win. We win. And listen, let me explain it this way. I know some of you still hate it that I'm a Dallas Cowboy fan. And you can pray for us. We play the Patriots later. And so... I was born a Dallas Cowboy fan. I've been a Dallas Cowboy fan longer than I've been a, a Christian, and especially in the days of Roger Staubach and Tom Landry. And I never will forget 1975. 1975, the Dallas Cowboys uh, are a wild card team in the playoffs. In fact, is they were first professional football team, first NFL team as a wild card team that went to the Super Bowl. And the, the Minnesota Vikings stood in our way. And so um, we, played in, we played in Minnesota because we were a wild card team. It was cold. It was windy. Uh, they had home field ad ad advantage. Uh, we were losing 10 to 14, 32 seconds left. We had the ball on the 50-yard on the line, uh, fourth down. Roger Staubach takes the snap. He goes back. He throws a pass. And uh, when he released the pass, he closed his eyes, and he said a Hail Mary. That's, that's how the, the, that, that play was named. And so he threw this Hail Mary. Uh, Drew Pearson catches the pass, walks into the uh, end zone, wins the game. It was unbelievable. Now listen, before, before Drew Pearson caught that pass, I was angry. I was mad. I was saying some irreligious things to the TV because I wasn't a pastor or a Christian then. And, and so I was scared. I was depressed. I was angry. But then when we went into the end zone... Everything changed. 
everything changed. I mean, it was total celebration. And so can I confess something to you guys now? I still watch that same play. Like if I'm having a bad day, I, I get on YouTube. And, uh, and you can see the play on YouTube. And I go to YouTube, and guess what? I watch that play, and sometimes in slow motion. Uh, and you know what? It doesn't give me stress. It doesn't give me fear. It doesn't give me anger. Fact is, I cannot wait to watch that play. Why? What changed? I know we win. I know we win. See, that's what changed. And we have got to come to the place to where we know as believers, we know, we know we win. Men and women, you are followers of Jesus Christ, and we must never forget how the story ends. We win. The victory was, was sealed on the cross. Jesus said it was finished. Uh, victory was declared. We won. It's just like World War II when the Allies landed on Normandy. Uh, the victory was done. The war was over. But there was still some mopping up to do. There were still some battles to be won. The third thing, if you're going to thrive and not survive, is this, is you have to treat everybody with respect. You have to come to the place where you treat everybody with respect. What allows you and what allows me to treat everybody with respect is this issue of humility. Your trust is in God. This is what Simon Peter says. He has entrusted his life to him. See, Daniel didn't pretend to have humility. Daniel had humility. And because of that, it allowed Daniel to treat everyone with respect. See, respect is incredibly important even to God's enemies. I mean, let me just ask, don't raise your hands, don't answer out loud, but have you ever had someone in the workplace that just didn't like you, and they treated you with disrespect, and they were rude to you, and they cut you off, and all of those other things, and they never showed you any respect, and then one day, they came to you, and one day, they just totally lost it, and they yelled, and they screamed at you, and they disrespected you. Did you look at them and say, oh, you're right, I'm wrong, and you're right. I now see it your way. No, that never happens. Why? Because you get defensive. Because you know they don't respect you. Listen, let me tell you something. People can smell when you do not respect them. Listen, people know when you'd rather wipe them out than win them over. See, Daniel was amazing at this. Daniel didn't want to wipe anyone out. Daniel didn't want to destroy anyone out. See, Daniel didn't want to wipe them out. Daniel didn't want to wipe Nebuchadnezzar out. Daniel didn't want to wipe out the chief of eunuchs. Daniel didn't want to wipe out that culture. Daniel didn't want to wipe them out. He wanted to win them over. Even though Nebuchadnezzar was just like this. He was a godless person. And he put Daniel through some great grief. And he mocked his God and made fun of him. But Daniel still served him with respect and humility and when the time came when everything fell apart and the bottom dropped out of Nebuchadnezzar's life who did Nebuchadnezzar turn to Daniel because he knew he knew that Daniel respected him and he knew that Daniel had humility and he listened to him I think there's a group of Christians and there's a growing group of Christians and a growing group of churches that have forgotten that we win and somehow they think that Jesus is like my neighbor's dogs that just bark and bite and scream and rail at everything they do not like. But Daniel's miss mission was not to wipe out. It was to win over. Listen, our job, 
hear me, our job as believers is not to get pagans to act like Christians, but to get Christians to act like Christians. That's our job. And so many times, whether it's angry emails that I get from angry Christians or conversations that I have with angry Christians, that they're just like mad at everybody and they're not showing respect to anybody. And I always ask them, let me ask you, how many people have you won over? The list is never long. Because you can't win over people that you really want to wipe out. You cannot win over people that you're disrespectful to and always making fun of. That's why Timothy tells us uh, when someone is held captive to do the will of the enemy, he says this, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24. And the Lord's servant, servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to the only people we like politically, only the people we agree with, kind to everyone, able to teach patiently, enduring evil, correcting his opponents with what? Gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. I tell you, if you do this, God open up doors. Our church should be the type of the church. When our city has a crisis, our city turns to our church because they know we don't want to wipe them out. We don't win them over. The fourth and the last thing, if you're going to thrive and not survive, is this. You better pick your battles carefully. You have to learn to pick your battles carefully. Daniel had incredible wisdom in knowing what battles to pick and what battles to overlook. Wisdom knows the difference. We've talked about that. Wisdom isn't just being able to see the problem. Wisdom is knowing how to handle the problem. Wisdom knows the difference between the things that we don't like and the things that God won't allow or the things that God forgives. I, I would just imagine Daniel did not like being called Satan's prince. But there's not a Bible verse that says God forbids that. There's not a Bible verse that says you cannot be called Satan's prince. So he decided to overlook it. He picked his battles carefully. In Daniel's life, when God clearly forbid something, when God clearly said no in Scripture, you know what Daniel did? He quietly, it's just amazing to me, he quietly tried to get out of it. And he was willing to accept the consequences without a chip on his shoulder, without looking to sue someone or looking to hurt someone. Listen, I'm telling you, folks, if, if we'll just if we'll live this kind of life, we'll influence our culture. We can't fight spiritual battles with worldly weapons. Three times, I'm just telling you, read the book of Daniel for yourself. Three times in the book of Daniel, Daniel led Nebuchadnezzar, the culture, into three different revivals. And the darker it gets the darker it gets, the brighter the light. That's why I think even though we may be shocked at some of the things going on, we may be shocked at the culture that's getting darker, I think this is the greatest days for the local church because the darker the night, the brighter the light. It's not about what we don't like. It's about what God forbids. It's about what God says no. And it is forcing us 
to be distinct in this culture. And the good news is this, John chapter 1, verse 5, the light shines in the darkness. What a promise. And the darkness has not overcome it. Light always trumps darkness. Darkness never trumps light. Would you bow your heads with me and close your eyes? Let me ask you with your heads bowed and eyes closed, what is God saying to you? What is God saying to you as a result of this message? What is God saying to you as a result of this word? Maybe more importantly, what is your next step? How does, how does he want you to respond? Do you need just to be reminded this morning that even though things are shifting in our culture, God's in control. God's in control. And we're not trying to wipe out anyone. We're trying to influence. We're trying to, we're trying to win over. Let me ask you this. Do you have a relationship with Christ? I mean, have you come to that place to where you have a relationship with Christ? Because without that, you'll look exactly like the world. You'll handle, handle your dating life like the world. You'll handle your marriage like the world. You'll handle parenting like the world. You'll handle ev- there, there won't be any difference in the way you live your life and the way they live their life. Let me ask you, have you ever accepted Christ? Where your life actually changed? Not that you were perfect, but things began to line up in your life. Where you t- begin to take His Word, His values, and apply them to your life. To where you can bless a marriage. He can bless a dating relationship. He can bless a home. He can bless a career and a profession. What is God saying to you as a result of this message? Do you need to learn how to treat everybody with respect? Even though you don't agree agree with them. But you have compassion for them. Maybe this morning, maybe you say, you know what, I, I have a prayer request. I just need someone to pray for me. We want to pray for you. So in just a few minutes after I pray, we're going to stand. And when we stand, if you need prayer for any area, in any area of your life, we want to pray for you. What's a, what's a relational issue? What's a health issue, a financial issue? Whether you want to pray for someone else, whether you want to pray maybe for our country. It may have something to do with what I've just talked about. It may have nothing to do with what I've talked about. That's okay, too. But if you have a burden that God has laid on your heart and you'd say, you know, I just need someone to pray for you. This is a safe place. This is when we minister one to another. And there's something for every one of us to do. This isn't the close of our service. This is probably the most important, one of the most important parts of our service. And so whether you respond by coming down for prayer or you respond by just standing, supporting those who are coming and praying for them, there is something for every one of us to do. So if you need prayer, and you need to respond. God's made that clear to you. After I pray, you come when we stand. Father, we thank you for your love. We just thank you for your grace. We thank you for the power of your name. And so, Father, we just ask that you'd pull this church very closely to you and that we, we, would, we would know, we know that you're here with us, that you respond to our prayers. You respond when we minister to one to another. And so may we just respond to you this morning. And would prayers be answered, would find encouragement, strength, and support as we walk following you. Father, we love you, and we look forward to see what you're going to do, for we ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.